0: Welcome to Season 2 of The Unforgiving Sixty with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis, two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs. In this show, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further.
1: Part B of Courage Under Fire with Daniel Kieran, V.C. If you haven't listened to part A, it's well worth it to understand Dan's upbringing in which the first person he ever saw shot was his father. We talk about his joining the army, his first deployment into Timor-Leste, his second deployment into Iraq, where he was shot at for the first time, and then the next rotation into Afghanistan in support of the Special Operations Task Group. Take a listen. And for those that have listened, let's get on with the show. out of Afghanistan after that tour and then we go back in again in 2010 and you're in a different role going back into country. Can you talk about what rank you held there and how that looked when you went back into Afghanistan?
2: Yeah, look, I think we're fortunate to have a few years' separation between being there and and the sort of operations that we were conducting at that point in time to then uh, missing a lot of the reconstruction uh, elements, you know, I wasn't part of any of the reconstruction in, in Afghanistan at all, then going into uh, MTF-1. So we're there as a, a, a task force to mentor the Afghan National Army to get them to a standard where they can look after security of their own country. So again, a, a change in operation uh, completely from, well, not completely, but from what they had been doing up until that point. Uh, so for me, uh, again, I was sent across as, I think it was a motorized corporal. They, they, they coined it as, so I don't even know what the hell that is. But anyway, I was looking after, <laughs> looking after five vehicles, uh, and you know, it's just admin, <laughs> just admin, right. Looking after the supply chain logistics, you know, uh, moving from point A to point B again, probably for the first three and a half months of that trip. Uh, because I didn't really have a, a spot for us. Delta company or combat team Delta. So we were, uh, enabler. So if some, of, if one of them, one of the uh, patrol bases where we were spread out uh, needed a bit of extra support, um, Delta would go out and then assist them with the combat operations or a, a surge, if you will, of, of combat power if required. So after that three-month period, I think there was a uh, uh, patrol base Hadrian. Uh, I was called. So as uh, the Dutch had finally announced that they were pulling out, and we were the element that were going to move into that area, and Duraywood was was part of that. So I ended up out at uh, patrol base Energy. And uh, I remember the first day we got in there. I think there was probably twelve French, I think, foreign legion, some of the guys there, soldiers there, and naturally, being Australians, we got, we're going to put double that amount in this patrol base. It just was not designed for it. So it reminds me of home, actually. Uh, patrol bases, there's dirt <laughs> floors. There was power. There was power, but so there was a generator. <laughs> it was rough. It was really rough. It was. I think it was described later as the fringe of bandit country because no one had been up there, right? It's mm-hmm. like. You go to, I think it was a 4-2 Northing, uh, and that's where the French had been patrolling to, and it's like, oh, we don't go past there because we get shot at. So they they just had this this understanding where, well, we'll do our thing, and, you know, if we go past that, we'll get shot at, so we won't go past that. So that that was the unofficial agreed sort of, you know, uh, designated fire line in, in the area of operations. So naturally we will walk, walk past that the first day we're, we're in in area and yeah, sure enough, we got shut out. So we knew, we knew that it was a high threat environment, but they, you know, we hadn't really had the IEDs filter out to this part because there was no operations out there, Like they hadn't really been conducting operations in this, this area. The, the one time they took a couple of vehicles out there, you know, unfortunately they took casualties, coalition casualties, there were it blow up a couple of skin vehicles. So, so they, they were still up until that point, but once you got past, past the actual patrol boats, no one had been up there, um, so it was again exciting times. We had no manual or had no sort of, you know, I wouldn't say plan. We had a plan, let's be honest, but we had no idea of what we were getting ourselves into uh, because no one had done it before. Mm. We didn't even know. I remember our sergeant going, "Mate, I don't even know how we're going to get resupplied." We just, you know, we, we just hoped work it out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. We just, we did. We just made it work, right? Just the the old Aussie way of going, "Look, let's have a crack," and and we had a crack and made it work.
1: So the one thing you did know was that if you went past that 4-2 Northing, you were going to get shot at. But a deliberate decision was made by the platoon commander and the section commanders that were going past the 4-2 Northing. Why was that decision made?
2: Uh, Look, that's an easy one to answer. So it was always Afghan-led. So the Afghan Kandak uh, was their call. That's what they wanted to do. So the operational Oversight was in fact in the hands of the Afghan National Army. and We were there as a supporting element, whether it be manpower assets. And, and most of the time, let's be honest, it was, you know, it was the fixed-wing assets or our JTAX to bring, you know, to bear required um, uh, assets, I suppose, to deal with the threat. But look, we were there to to, t- uh, to train and you know, teach them, you know, tactics, techniques, procedures, all that sort of stuff. But for them, it was Afghan-led. They wanted to go up there. They wanted to clear it out. Uh, you have to check this fact, but I believe it was also the the birthplace of Mullah Omar, so that's the spiritual leader of mm-hmm. the Taliban. So, mm-hmm. my understanding is that it it was in fact his birthplace up this valley. So, therefore, you know it was uh, associated with with a significant um, place for the Taliban. Uh, but probably why it ended up being such a big contact when we when we fully got into there.
1: Yeah. Hmm. So let's not quite cross the northing yet. I'm keen <laughs> to just maybe reflect on that mentoring task. I think we've all spent a phenomenal amount of time in Afghanistan, and the Afghan people are an incredible group of humans. What did you learn from the Afghan National Army soldiers that you were working with?
2: Oh, now it's going to be hard. It's going to be tough, because I tell you what, we had some really good, really good soldiers that wanted to be there, that really loved their country, that wanted to get back on track. Then we had those that were there. I have no idea why they were there, for a paycheck, maybe, that would that would shoot up drugs that would, you know, you'd have to check whether or not they were high before coming out on patrol with you. So there was two elements, those that love their country and those that would i have no idea feeders that were there that, that just made things hard, made things hard for us to do our job.
0: Mm.
2: Now, you know, they were pretty good at, uh, at at sending us a number of soldiers each day that were capable uh, and they'd pick that, you know, they'd have 20 something soldiers there and they'd pick 10 soldiers to come out on patrol with us. Um, it was a pretty a loose, loose agreement at that point in time. Um, but had a number of commanders go back and forward. And I, and I won't talk about the the, the, I suppose the politics that were going back and forth at that point in time with the Afghan national army, but it was, it was frustrating most days. Let's be honest. So we're there to do a job and we're there to, you know, we're there to support them. Let's be honest. It's, it's their country. And mm. for them not to sometimes some of the behavior that I saw, if it's, yeah, it's tough to, to get behind them and to, to get engaged and to, to get, them, get them going when, when it, it was a bit of a chore some days to do that. Um,
0: and I'm trying to get my chronology right. Had the green on blue attacks started? So the green on blues were when the um, partnered Afghan forces, uh, rogue elements within them would turn on coalition forces. A number of Australians lost their lives that way, but hadn't quite kicked in at that point.
2: No, you're correct. No, it, had, it hadn't happened at that point in time. So, but, I mean, we always took precautions. And I think, I wouldn't say we we're ahead of our time. We always took precautions anyway, but I always had a pistol. I had one up that's about ready to go. We always went in groups of twos. Our patrol base was a bit of a unique setup where, whereby there was two sort of patrol bases uh, or forts, whatever you want to define them as. And they were probably 50 metres separated on a spur, on a hill. So you could walk between them quite easily. And, and we'd often invite the Afghans um, down and we'd watch movies with them. Or one of the engineers, I don't know, he, he acquired a, a satellite from somewhere and he was stealing I don't know, a satellite from India or something. I don't know what was going on there. But anyway, so we, we had a TV and a satellite set up and uh, some great Bollywood movies going on, but uh, it was just a, a good environment to bring them down. And then one of the commanders stopped that um, from happening. So we sort of lost lost a bit of our ability to, to sort of break down some of those barriers when, when that had occurred. So it was always, it was always tough to do that. And I think we, we, you know, we even uh, we even bought a sheep at one point um, and, and slaughtered a sheep to show our goodwill. And we all helped, you know, you know get involved and look, you know, we tried really hard to, to break those barriers down and, and we'd do it daily. But I mean, it was always, there's always something there. And it was often, it was often the commander that their, their commander that would prevent us from from truly getting to know each other. And, and I think um, I look back now and, and sort of wonder what his motivations were. And I know he's removed from command actually uh, and we ended up getting someone else there. It was, you know, absolutely straight, straight up and down sort of uh, individual that was, that you know, it was even harder to deal with. So, you know, it, it, was, it was challenging, boys. Yeah, it yeah. was challenging.
0: Okay. So we've got the 42 Northing. We know that if we cross the 42 Northing, we're going to get shot at. You set out. You cross the forty-two northing. What happens?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you're shorter, you? <laughs> so look, I mean, it was—it was you know, there's there's weeks of, of planning that go into these patrols, as as you guys are aware. So, you know, we had all the assets available supporting us from from labs that had been sent out to a, a another platoon or a platoon plus from patrol base Hadrian, which was about eighteen kilometres away. So that would come out, you know, very early first flight, They'd come out to support our movement. We had engineers. We had extra snipers as well to support us extra, um, you had a couple of uh, medics there as well. So look, we had, we had the works, um, you know, we didn't go into this with our eyes uh, half closed. That's for sure. Um, the engineers had a really tough time of searching in our vehicles. So the idea that I suppose that I, quick, I won't go into the tactics of this, but the, the idea was to search uh, for IODs first to get vehicles into a location that could support us or a support by fire location, if it all went to shit. So they couldn't really get the vehicles in the night before. That was the idea because of the high metal content in the ground. So they get all these false hits and the sun's mm-hmm. going down and uh, the commander good on him. He's like, nah, this is, we're pulling up pin on this. We're not going to search by night. That's crazy. We just don't do it anyway. So first thing sun comes up in the morning and they're straight away. They're back into it to get the vehicles into place. Probably blew out our timings. We're out two hours um, to, to actually do this patrol. Whilst that was going on, whilst that search was going on, they noticed droves of women and children leaving the village. Now I'd seen that in my, my last trip, working with the special forces guys of, you know, up and up and leaving women and, and kids. And, and there's no fighting aged males to be seen. Not always did, did it kick off, but often mm. often, often it would. Uh, so it was a, you know, a combat indicator that, okay, something potentially is going to happen. Um, you know, we, we married up with our engineers. We'd, we'd left the patrol base. We had about 20 Afghan national army soldiers. So we actually had all the Afghans this, this particular day. It was, you know, their mission, they wanted to to clear this valley out. Um, we had our twenty odd soldiers as well. I think we left like one bloke back at the patrol base on the fifty and the radio. Uh, so that, that was our int, uh, int corporal. So he was man, he was man, at everything. He
0: was watching so, Bollywood. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Nah, he was multitasking like a, <laughs> like a like a madman later on. And yeah, when it all went to shit, uh, he he absolutely was the the man on the spot that uh, that got us fire support. That got us the comms back to to where we needed to get them. So hat goes off to him. He did a good job that day. So from, so the, you know, the patrol kicked off and you know, 20 Afghan soldiers, 20 Australian soldiers, we married up with another team that had come out that morning. So probably 18 soldiers or so They you know, had a, had a sergeant, had a, had a, a captain there with the JTAC as well, had a sniper pair as well. So it was a, it was a heavy, you know, platoon sort of minus sort of group that had come in to assist us. Um, the idea was to, to walk or patrol through the village, clearance mission, um, key leader engagement end. So basically it meant we'd, we'd sit down with the, you know, the, the oldest bloke in the village and, and chat about his concerns and what was going on. We hadn't had that opportunity yet. So that was our, our task, rough, rough task, what we were trying to achieve that day. And as, as we started, you know, patrolling along, it was pretty, pretty eerie, let's be honest. You know, it was, I suppose a, a scene out of the wild west to describe it, you know, a few tumbleweeds going along. It's, it's summer, it's bloody hot, but I was, some reason carry about 40 kilos of equipment, you know, plates and, you know, frag and all bloody rounds I was carrying and spare gun ammo and everything else and radios and everything. So I know, was pretty weighed down for whatever reason, just with a, with a, an assault rifle. Um, but anyway, we, we, we got through the village itself and our other support team was probably 500 meters behind us. And as I've come around the last building, there's probably two Australian soldiers in front of me two Afghan national army soldiers sort of gone, had gone slight right up a, up a hill. And as I've come around one of the one of the buildings, and I say building, it's mud, straw, dung construction, right? I've come around this building, and someone's opened up with a, a PKM. Now I'm not sure if it was uh, straight at me, but it was the two guys in front, and it's literally struck the ground uh, to the left of me. You know, close, meter, meter to the left of me. I uh, know a good twenty round burst of striking the ground and hitting the wall um, to to my left. So I've had the two Aussies go straight to the aqueduct and weapons up and start returning fire at this guy. It's probably eighty meters ish, eighty meters from my p- position. Maybe sixty meters from their position. Two Afghan uh, army soldiers have sort of gone high as I sit up the hill, and here I am going shit. I'm sort of uh, in a spot here where I've got I can either go forward, which is was open, as all get out and get into this aqueduct, or there was some sort of cover from the right hand side in an elevated position. I thought I'm going to go straight up that elevated position, get up on top, and fire down. That was that was the first sort of thoughts uh, in my head. And uh, naturally, I've, I've you know I've turned and and run straight up this hill, sort of cover. I would say, would yeah, yeah, it was cover. Got to the top, bloody idiot that I was. Adrenaline's up. I've gone too far. Clearly, I've just you know gone absolutely way too far. And here I am standing on this bloody hill and ex, you know clearly exposed myself like an idiot because it wasn't just that one dude there, was it? It was a well-prepared attack. They were waiting for us. So I got marked up We got shot at from several locations. So there was a, a, a river running down the so village on one side river running down um, on the other, opposite side of the, the village. There's all corn, dope crops um, further out. So from probably 70 meters out to 500 meters from several locations, they see me standing on this hill and start shooting at me. I just remember seeing after, let's, after, <laughs> after I get on my belly, and you know, you know, I use, I always say I've got a big nose and I use it to great effect at that point in time where I'm, I'm like, you know, you always hear those stories. I was literally shoveling my head into the ground and, and trying to crawl like a, like a worm on my guts trying to get off the top of this hill as fast as I possibly could as bullets start coming in. And there's like a wall of dust coming at me. I'm like, shit, what have I done? And I'm like, I'm I've, a I've, bloody idiot. I remember saying that over and over in my head, you bloody idiot, you bloody idiot. Um, I got onto the radio very quickly and, and uh, platoon commander, as as they always are, always after information, and he's uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> sensitive.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm like, yeah, it is. I'm like, it's like it's pretty serious. Uh, the boss comes, and I said, "Yeah, no shit, boss." <laughs> 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 you know, it, it, we hadn't. You know, we'd been in probably maybe ten uh, contacts to that point in time in that trip. So look, the boys have been shot at a bit. We were experienced. We knew what, you know. We knew what to expect. I hadn't experienced anything like that. Even, even with my, my time working with the special forces where I think I dropped 16, 500 pounders one day, like from sun up to sundown, but the volume of fire that hit me, I hadn't, hadn't experienced anything like it. Um, I thought I was done for. So somehow I didn't get shot. I have no idea. I should, I should be dead. Somehow I wasn't killed. Got off the top of that right uh, off the top of that hill and or, or back probably 10 meters from the top of it and, and got onto the radio and, the plan was for our labs. We had two gun cars there we were to wait, to be called forward. But they didn't wait. They literally rolled up and started engaging targets straight away uh, They had their out to three, three K. So they, they had their sights up and, and, straight away into it. I remember calling it a rough fire mission. And <laughs> it was rough. There was no by the book for this one. It's, it ended up being because I was split from a call sign and I was a mentor. Like I didn't have a, a team, like a, an actual team associate. I was, I was supposed to look after the Afghans and make sure they weren't shooting in the wrong direction. Right? So, I ended up being a call sign down on the hill uh, and, I, and I've called a, yeah, called a quick fire mission in for, um, cause I couldn't work out. I remember seeing um, as I'm lying on, on the ground, I remember seeing the strike of the bullets uh, hit the ground. And as they're falling around me, I'm like, where the hell is that coming from? And it was from an elevated position. And, and cause it was a mountain range to my right hand side. To this day, I have absolutely no idea how someone got up there, but sure enough, there was, there was a couple of guys up on this bloody mountain range and they were firing down at me. And the lab sort of swung around, traversed around, and engaged. And as soon as they did a couple of um, couple of uh, runs up there, they they stopped firing from that location. So either scared them away or, or neutralised the target pretty quickly. So that's sort of how it all kicked off, mate. Yeah.
1: But then you repeatedly exposed yourself in order to identify where positions were, so you could bring fire to bear.
2: Yes, it's probably half an hour into it. So, you know, the, the word comes back, you know, our snipers moved forward uh, to a position. I ended up with probably 10 Afghan National Army soldiers with me on the hill. So our Lance Corporal uh, Woolley, he, um, you know, turning on the spot sort of setting guys up to me that had uh, RPGs and, and PKM, so machine guns and I'm you know, getting rough, a rough sort of Afghan fire line set up um, making sure that they're not shooting at our boys. And uh, the guys were assaulting Ford in the aqueduct. So the, the, the boss said, look, let's have a crack. Um, so we ended up having guys get into the aqueduct and start pushing forward. And then I'd walk my fire uh, along the aqueduct to, you know, in front of them, you know, five, 10 to sort of the 15 meters as they're, as they're going forward. So they're, you know, they're gaining ground. Um, but I, you know, it was probably, as I said, probably half an hour into this. And so it's all, everything shaken out. Um, that I, I remember looking over to my left-hand side. I, mean, I think it was a scream even, which I thought was so bizarre. Um, I don't know what caused me to look, but something caused me to look over to my left-hand side. And I remember seeing my mate, uh, Jared, um, and he'd, he was lying on his back. And I thought that was so peculiar. Uh, so he was the, one of the supporting teams. He was a call sign of 4-3 Charlie. And he was at 500 metres behind us originally. And their idea was... a. A flexible sort of team that could plug and play where required if, if required and it was a rear security sort of thing and they were called forward within that half an hour and they'd run probably 500 meters it's afghan it's 40 something degree heat um through the aqueducts it was the safest route you know there could have been IEDs no in there but nah, highly unlikely the waterproofing required and everything else associated so they, they thought they'd go straight through the aqueduct and by the time they got to our location they're pretty pretty fatigued and uh, Jared's grabbed the gun and he's run up the hill, pretty much the same spot that I nearly got killed in the first sort of opening rounds. Mm. And I've seen him there lying, lying on his back. And I thought that was just odd. And I heard heard the call over the radio had been uh, hit in the arm. Uh, once I heard that, I didn't really think much of it. I'll be honest. Cause guys have been hit and you know, over the when you hear arm and being shot, you sort of straight away think it's minor. Well I do anyway, go and, He's got mates there. He's got a medic there. He'll be sweet. He'll be back in the fight in no time at all. But I mean, that wasn't the case. I had an Australian gunner with me as well. And he was engaging targets as as best we could. It was getting tough to identify targets. Uh, We're engaging them out to probably 500 meters where we'd see movement, you know, and you know, it's moving between cover. You'd see them move from cover to cover um, Mm. progressively coming at your location from further down the valley. Um, but as this was going on, I, you know, he's still engaging. I remember looking over to my left again for only, you know, 15 seconds or so since it's happened. And, and there's, there's a, a group of boys that had got to him pretty, pretty quick. And then they're, they're nudging him up on the hill. So they're ripping his body arm off, ripping his clothes off. And it, still at that point, I, I didn't I'm just going, what's going on. He's been shot in the arm. You know, what's happening here. This must be pretty mm. serious. And, and it turned out it was clearly. Uh, again, I look over and there's, there's a bloke doing CPR on his knees on top of the hill, literally doing compressions as a burst of machine gun fire comes in. And there's another guy, I think it was one of the engineers has grabbed this guy to CPR, grabbed him by his helmet and like, like ripped him down to lower his profile as, as rounds just come in. I remember seeing that and thinking, shit, if, if someone doesn't do something, mm-hmm. there's a, there's a team they, all these guys are about to get killed mm-hmm. because they're, they're not going to leave our mate and they're still dragging him off the hill by the way. And they've they've clearly exposed the Taliban had started manoeuvring and started flanking us on the left hand side. So they'd they'd come up to a point, but then three hundred metres across the river and across the corn crops and the dope crops, there's another little village and they were sort of coming around our left hand side and sort of flanking our left hand side. And that's one of the bullets to this day that got him that it had come across our position and hit him in the arm as he's lying behind the machine gun. So, you know, they're not gonna leave him there. So hats off to those boys there, as they wouldn't, but you know. I see this and go, shit, if someone doesn't do something now, everyone, everyone in that team's about to die. Now we had our labs firing at that point in time. Uh, we had a JTAC that I, I ducked off the hill. When I duck off, I'd run off the hill and grabbed him and got him up to my location. I said, mate, there's no point hanging down here in the building. You need to go see, see where these boys are so we can start dropping, dropping bombs. And, uh, I made a decision at that point in time because nothing was working and they were still, they was still assaulting our location. I thought I'd, uh, I thought I'd expose my position to try and draw fire away from my mate and the team, but also to try and identify targets. So we could start bringing one five, five in as well. Um, we had a couple of uh, Apaches as well, but they were, I think they were half an hour away or 20 minutes away or something, which 20 minutes is a long time. When, mm. when you got that many bullets going back and forward. So I made a decision very quickly and it must've been a great plan. Um, because I still remember the look on, on, my, gunner's face, on my gunner's face so he sort of looked up at me uh, as I'm sort of kneeling, you know, on the reverse side of this hill. I'm, I'm kneeling there and he's looked at me, sort of <laughs> look on his face. I still remember getting up and taking a few measured steps forward and, and waiting for that familiar crack thump sound of a bullet as it travels past your head and then started moving, moving or uh, well, running, let's be honest, uh, along this hill uh, it turns out if you give someone fun to shoot at, they start shooting at it. So it was, there was, mate, it was just crazy how it worked. Where it was, I remember seeing all the bullets, literally bullets falling around these guys, and then it switched to me running along along the hill. And I remember my gunner going, mate, they're getting close. I'm like, yeah, mate, no you they're getting close as, I, as I, I run and come back again. But, uh, you know, I wasn't, you know, people asked me what was going through my head. I. When I I was fearful of, I think letting people down. I think I was fearful of not doing something. I think that's what my fear was. I wasn't fearful of, of, of dying or, or getting hurt. I, I justified that by, I had plates on front and back. I had Kevlar and I thought, look, I hope I just take one on the plate. Uh, but I had faith and I had absolute trust in my team. I absolutely knew that they would grab me and drag me off the hill if I took took a bullet and and I knew there's a chopper coming in already to grab grab my mate it had been shot as well so I think that's how I justified what I did and I, I did a number of runs I think it's three four runs in total the fourth one back to to help my mate out but it was working it was a crazy thing it it was started working so I just kept on doing it until, until we got to a position where we could you know we could move him to the helicopter that was coming in
1: And do I remember that you were always a pretty good runner anyway? Was this added motivation (laughs) to to run and sidestep a bit quicker than you ever had before? Uh, I mean, well, it's like, you you know, you you start off as a... (laughs)
2: But I'll probably quite quickly, let's be honest. <laughs> you see, you know, you see some, you know, you're, you're seeing things fall in front of you, so you're, you're slowing down and they're behind you, then you're like, shit, I'm committed now, so just keep going. So I don't think there's a a correct pace associated with someone running along as I'm shooting at you, but all uh, right. So, uh, mate, yeah, look, I, I, I guess they should be dead.
0: <laughs> I guess the correct pace is the pace that sees you not get shot, so mm-hmm. you, you mm-hmm. must have nailed that.
2: Yeah, look, I. I mean, I. I don't know, again, I should have been shot. I should have, I look back now from a tactical point of view, if I had, you know, had I got shot in the arm or the leg or something like that, it would have taken another team out of the fight to come and grab me. So, I mean, I look at it now and at the time and I was aware of that going, this is, you know, if I get hit, this is pretty stupid because it's going to take more elements out of the fight. However, nothing else was working. So, you know, I still stand by my decision because it ended up working, but it could have gone pretty badly if I had got hit.
0: So, Dan, with the benefit of hindsight, and it clearly wasn't until a couple of years later that all of this sort of came home to roost, if you like, um, mm. that was the moment that, that changed your life. But after that event, in the immediate aftermath, were you aware of the significance of what had just happened?
2: No, no, not at all. No, look, it was, you know, we'd been in, as I said, a number of, of texts, a, a number of contacts. I mean, that was, don't get me wrong, that was pretty bloody big that particular day. And then, you know, we we lost a good mate. I'd I'd served with Jared previously. I, you know, had a barbecue at my place before going, going to Iraq even with him and his family. And I'd actually chatted with him in, in the, you know, before heading up the hill and and asked how his, how his wife was going. And, you know, she was pregnant their second at that point in time. And, but it's for me, I look, I look back at that point in time and, and, and think, you know, it's probably one of the hardest things I've had to do is walk back from that contact site. One, knowing that one of my good mates had been killed and two, also knowing that back home um, he'd, left, he'd left someone behind that was about to have another child. So for me, you know, I wasn't really thinking about the significance of the contact at all or how big it was or anything. It was well and truly firmly of one, I think grieving and, and two realizing that it's still a job to do and we had to get back out there two days later and probably do it all again. So I think it was just a, like a, that was, now, the twenty fourth, and now we've got the twenty fifth. That was the mentality at that point in time. Yeah,
1: it's an incredible period of time, and many listening to this that are trying to process it might ask the same question of you: How can you possibly now continue to process this in such a positive, matter-of-fact way?
2: I think yeah, a matter-of-fact way. I mean, it's just for me, it's a scenario of events that have that have happened. I tell you what, it's some pretty shit hours in some of those scenarios that have, that have happened. But for me, look, there was always a, a, a job to do. It's not about the job at all, but it's always about looking after your mates and looking after your team. And the best way that you can do that is being a positive mindset and to lead and to get them back out there and, and doing what they, you know, what they need to do to look after themselves because it's a pretty high threat environment. That's how I always looked at it. Uh, you know, if, if they're doing their job hundred percent, that means, you know, if something does happen, they're at the best possible, Uh, opportunity to survive what's about to happen that's sort of the the mentality that i took on um so for me it's like you know if if you're professional and you're doing what you need to do um you'll come out of this the other end Mm. yeah so
1: and and leaving afghanistan how was the feeling amongst the team having lost lost crash um but done some incredible things collectively
2: but it, look, it was a, it was a, it was a tough deployment for defense in general and, and across the board because there was, there was 10, there was 10 soldiers, you know, that, that deployment and not all of them were MTF one. We you know had the, the number of the SF lads as well. And look, it was just a, it was a, it was a shit time of, of, of year. And it was, it was, I think it was tough for everyone to lose so many people that, that we all knew. Um, the day that I left, the day that I left, I remember leaving for whatever reason, I had the opportunity to, to leave early by about a week. Cause the chopper came in They had a spare spot and never knew when the chopper was going to get out where we were. So, <laughs> um, but the, literally as I'm grabbing my gear, I remember one of the boys and I don't know, someone's got it somewhere. Took took a photo, just happened to take a photo probably 500 meters across from us of an IED going off, uh, and probably killing several civilians as a, as a bus has driven over it. Right? So that was the day that I left. I remember, leaving as this IEDs probably killed innocent women and children because of, because of the blow that the Taliban had been dealt in that, that area. And, and we did, we, we did blow them, you know, we did deal them a, a blow to their morale to freedom of movement in that area. Absolutely. And as a result of that, they started using IEDs in the area and the day I left, you know, they killed innocent women and children. So, you know, a job are left unfinished. Absolutely. Uh, and for us, you sort of, for me now i, I sort of ponder, you know the lives associated with loss associated with the operations over there, and where the country is now. You know, I try not to think about it too much because you know it's it's not a not a positive uh, positive sort of thought uh, process that that occurs in that space.
0: Yeah, and I think nationally, I think a lot of veterans are, are probably looking at that same sort of thing. And I, I think to your point earlier that um, you know there's always going to be politics behind these decisions, and and I always found it. Quite opaque as to you know well exactly what is the in order to here you know what is the purpose of what we're doing, yeah. but ultimately um, it does boil down to to working with your mates and doing a good job um, in those difficult circumstances.
2: Yeah, look, I look absolutely, but I I would look let's let's make it absolutely clear. Look, oh, of course I wanted to go overseas. I wanted to mm-hmm. serve. I you know whoever the government of the day was at sent us overseas. Absolutely. But I mean, I always look back, I was there for the guys I was with, for the girls I was with, for those in uniform. I wasn't there for some political agenda. I was there because of my mates were there and my team was there.
0: Mm. So back to Australia and ultimately out of uniform.
2: Yeah, look, I I, I was. I discussed it uh, about leaving before that trip. So I I had had a number of injuries up until that point. So my, my hopes of, of going over, were still whatever, we're, were dashed. So, you know, let's be honest. I'm, I'm a realist and, and realized my body wasn't up for it. So uh, there was nothing else that I wanted to do in defense. So I, I had a clash with a, uh, we'll call it middle management in defense. And, and honestly, if, if I didn't have that clash, who knows where I would be now, I may still have been in defense because I, I spoke about leaving. I couldn't do what I wanted to do. However, I was looking at doing you know, other, other opportunities within defense cause so, I, you know, I did like, lo- I still did love it, but uh, there was one individual that, uh, absolutely. If there was a coffin and there was nails, he put the final one in it. And, mm-hmm. and I, uh, I put my discharge in, took my long seat at the service, not long after uh, returning from that deployment. And, uh, and that was it for me and my, my full-time career in defense.
1: And so a couple of steps later, you find yourself working on a mine site for a drilling company in a little place called Kalgoorlie.
2: Let's talk about that
1: transition a little.
2: Yeah, look, the transition, goodness. It wasn't smooth, let's be honest, boys. Like, I I made the decision to get out, absolutely. Uh, I probably applied for 40 jobs in Brisbane, right? I didn't, I didn't even get a call back. I didn't even get a look in on my CV. So I couldn't get a job. Couldn't get a job in Brizzy at the time. Uh, and I uh, had a mate that I'd, I'd served with in Iraq and, and actually did my uh over in Ireland and, and Europe. That's a different story with him. And uh, and he's he was over in Kalgoorlie and he was dating the boss's daughter of a drilling company. He said, mate, come over. There's plenty of work over here. So literally that's, that's how I ended up on this adventure to go to Kalgoorlie. I had a, a Holden Ute, a Holden BY I think it was at the time and I literally drove across the Nullarbor, drove, drove across the, the country and slept on the side of the road and started work the day that I arrived in Kalgoorlie. With no real plan, it's like well, we've got work, I'm coming over and I started the day that I got over there and and uh, took the uh, uh, the wife over at the time, my ex-wife now over and, and convinced her that you know that was a it was a good move to come across and she came across, you know, a number of months, months after I went across and established myself over there.
0: Yeah. Uh, you must have inherited some of Cowboy's charm if you were able to convince your wife that Kalgoorlie is a better <laughs> option than Brisbane.
2: <laughs> well, look, I don't, she wasn't happy at that point time as well. So let, let's be brutally honest, but I, uh, yeah, yeah. So, but, you know, it was, that was the start of a, a whole new adventure of, of working the mines to, you know, the first probably 12 months uh, drilling all across WA you know, trucks breaking down in the middle of nowhere, driving, you know, sleeping in the dirt and swags and, you know, not showering and very much reminded me of Afghan in some ways <laughs> In <their> my <laughs> upbringing as a kid. So I, I was fine. I'll tell you what, we went through a fair few employees, yeah. you know, they'd rock up having no idea what they were getting into and going, Oh yeah, this is not for me. See you later. So it a week. I think we, we lost a bloke after a day actually. Um, yeah, not, not for me. So, but I stayed with that for about 12 months and I was still, doing a few reserve days here or there not, not really, uh, engaging that much, but the social, the social aspect of uh, our reserve unit in Calgary was pretty, bloody good. So I, uh, I did maintain my links there. And one of the guys was working in an underground, uh, mine, and he was a, a shift boss at that point in time. And he convinced me it was a good idea to go underground. Uh, mate, with my skin, I thought it was a good idea as well. So <laughs> I, uh, I decided to take up that, that opportunity and I started driving the haul trucks and then naturally progressed to, to blasting, blasting hard, hard rock in the gold mine. So I did that for, for a number of years.
1: And how did work as a driller contrast with work in the military in terms of degree of difficulty, physical challenge?
2: <laughs> Repetition, i tell you what. It uh, depends on what you're doing. So it's on the RC rigs, so that's uh, rotation and, and air and anyway – Literally sample comes out, you get a bag, you put it under it, you catch that sample that's you know, drilled out of the earth's surface and you pick up that heavy bag of rock and, and walk it over and then you do it, again, and do it again and do it again and do it again and do it again and you know put a rod on occasionally if you've gone down three metres or however long your odds are. And, yeah, look, a lot of repetition, small teams, remote locations, a lot of freedom uh, to make decisions, a lot of problem solving, you know, breaking down, making things work, mechanical you know, solutions to just keep going. So look, I, look, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I did mm. enjoy it. Uh, it was hard work, but yeah, mm. probably the hardest, hardest physical labor that I've ever had to do. And certainly marble bar and that, you know, some of the hottest places in Australia as well were working. So mate, yeah, she's, she was tough. Yeah.
0: And so somewhere amongst this new life, you get a call out of the blue.
2: <laughs> oh, I did. Well, there was two calls. So there was two phone calls, one from, uh, from, uh, Lieutenant General David Morrison, uh, who had said uh, originally, and it was—it was literally. I think it was a 20-second call. Going, uh, Dan, uh, General Morrison, I think he said, uh, "It's come to my attention there was a, a, a bravery award nomination that uh, had been misplaced. Uh, we've now located it, and you've been put forward for something for your actions in Deriput. uh I didn't think much of it, in all honesty. I thought a bit odd that one of the generals was calling me. I, I kind of didn't didn't think much of it. I think it was late at night, sort of thing. And then two weeks later. I was uh, I was in the mines and I'd done re-entry, so re-entry. So they blast, and there's fumes, and you go around with a, a monitor and, and you know check the air quality and that to make sure it's all safe. So for whatever reason, I think it's, <laughs> it's not an overcharged and blew out a heap heap of vent bag and all the rest of it. So it's all smoke out. So everyone's up up the top, still getting some fresh air. And my phone was ringing, and I went went to my locker. And it was uh, General Morrison and again, and I'm like, this, "This is a practical joke. This is bullshit." Stop so, calling. Yeah, pretty much. I'm like, "Who is this? Like, what is going on?" And he convinced me of the case that it was, in fact, uh, General Morrison, of, of Chief of Army at the time, and that he had the jet, and then he was coming to Kalgoorlie. and I'm still not believing this. I'm like, "Nah, this is this is not happening." I don't know what it is, and I, I don't have a guilty conscience. But then I, I did. I started worrying. I'm like, "Why?" Because he didn't tell me what it was about. Why is the general coming to Calgary to come and see me? I'm like, have I not discharged probably? Did something happen in Afghanistan? You know, what, what is going on? Like, I'm starting to freak out. Let's be is honest. Is it about
0: that um, trunk you stole? You never saw him back
1: in. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. right. The don't, watch, the watch you
2: lost. Don't, don't tell them that boys. I'm still after me. But I, yeah, I, honestly, I was, I started getting worried. Uh, I really did. Um, and uh, sure enough, he arrives in Cal. And uh, I got there before him in, at the, the Kalgoorlie airport. Well, it's it's mm. an airport, it's corrugated iron. Uh, it's a we we are we're very
1: familiar with the Kalgoorlie airport. There's not much <laughs> so, to it, suffice to say. You're not going to miss each other.
2: No, no, no. So he couldn't get in, obviously, because he's. he's you know, <laughs> of he's, course. <laughs> and then finally managed to get in. And he walks to me with purpose and uh, he hands me a, it's an A4 piece of paper it was from Stephen Brady, who was the governor general secretary at the time. And it was on behalf of the queen, naturally I'm like, what is going on? Uh, He's like, read this. And it was a, it was a tick flick. There's literally a box and tick here, cross here, sign here. You've been nominated for the Victoria cross. Um, Now, I, you know, I was still at this point in time, I was a bit in denial of, of what was going on. I was given probably five minutes uh, to think about it and make a decision. Uh, hadn't, hadn't had an opportunity to talk to my team, hadn't got their thoughts on it. You know, that was going through my head at that point in time. Was very reluctant to do anything. I said, look, I, I need to talk to my boys. I need to know what's going on. They obviously nominated and put me forward for this. Um, you know, I, I was very apprehensive about it. Uh, and then I remember talking, talking to, to Morrison about it and, you know, signing, signing on the line and, and walking away and he literally grabbed, grabbed the piece of paper and he's off to another meeting and he's, he's, you know, we'll be in contact. That's sort of how it played out. I was sort of left there standing there as he's, as he's flying off going, what is going on? What's just happened? Mm. Um, without much context, without, you know, how much support at that point in time as well of, mm. of what had just happened and what was about to happen. But I couldn't tell anyone. I was under clear instructions. Someone would be in contact. I uh, couldn't tell anyone what was going on. Uh, you, know, you know, we had people come across from government house. Uh, they come across our little, our little shack in uh, Kalgoorlie and, you know, in our, in our house and explaining what's about to happen and, you know, having to invite people and then not tell them what it was about. Uh, you know, calling my mum and, and family and, and close friends that were still serving and, and those that had got out going, I really need you to come to Canberra in two weeks time, uh, but I can't tell you what it's about. Uh, someone will be in contact to organise you some flights. Uh, that's all the information I can give you. And literally that was it. Mm. Uh, and then let's just say I've got a good, good group of friends and family because they, they took that at face value and jumped on a plane and rocked up to Canberra, uh, f- you know, the, the day of the investiture. Mm. Um, I'll, I'll go back a step and you know, the night before the investiture, my family and that got there that, that night. And again, I, I love my mum so much because we were sitting around and I, I made the announcement the night before um, that I'd been nominated for the Victoria Cross and tomorrow I was going to get invested with it. And I remember my mum was sitting there pondering something. And then she's like, she calls me Denny, which I still hate to this day. But anyway, she calls me <laughs> Denny. And, uh, and she's like, oh, Denny, that's, that's, uh, that's what they awarded in the movie Zulu. So her favourite movie Zulu. And there was five <laughs> weeks awarded in Zulu. So she had no idea what it was until, yeah, until that point in time. And so the, the penny dropped. And yeah, no, it, was, it, was a, it was a pretty special moment.
1: And your dad was there, and you thought for a moment that he—you might see him for the first time ever in a suit.
2: Oh, mate! Look, he rocked up. So we told him, to – yeah. Let's not get into that. We, we gave him very <laughs> clear instruction as to the dress requirements. And I mean, it's
1: we, only Government House.
2: Well, anyway, he rocked up in a wife beater <laughs> and shorts that I think he'd seen a run in the '83 something. Well, you know. look, he just—he just, yeah. So I remember giving the credit card, uh, to, uh, it was to Michael. So to Catherine's dad and, uh, going, look, you need to dress him. So <laughs> went to Maya, got him a suit, got him shoes, got the whole, you know, full, full works. I think he, I don't think he even had a carry on bag when he got on the plane anyway. So so I dressed him the, yeah, and my, and my, and my mum and, and my sister as well. So, uh, made them, made them feel special and, and got them ready for, for the next day. So, no, it was just, just drama after drama sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, look, it, it all got there in the end. So yeah, the next day was, you know, it was an absolute whirlwind. I, you know, I still really hadn't had a chance to talk to people about this or well, I hadn't, hadn't talked to anyone. Mark Johnson had given me a call that week and Ben Robert Smith uh, as well uh, had, uh, had sent me a letter actually somehow cause he was in Afghanistan again. And he managed to, uh, to write me a letter and, and sent me a letter across that was there waiting for me, um, you know, uh, talking about sort of, I won't disclose what it was talking about, but anyway, mm-hmm. so I'd had those, those contacts from those two boys and, you know, all supportive going, mate, we're here for you. You know, you, you honestly don't know what you're about to, <laughs> to get yourself into. And I'm like, yeah, thanks lad. I, lads. I haven't really, <laughs> have no idea what's about to happen. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was a whirlwind of press of doorstops of, of you know, I'm a, I was a corporal in, in in the army doing my job. To now, everyone wanting a piece of me, completely different to what I set out to want mm. or do. Right, life absolutely turned upside down from that point in time.
1: And perhaps can we dwell a little bit on the public relations, uh, something that you weren't particularly comfortable with, mm. but it was just part of the job lot of being a VC recipient. How did that? affect
2: you yeah it's like you you will now talk to the media and and you'll be good at it and also you can't talk about this this and this and you know you know it was still very relevant to a lot of the operational stuff that i was involved in that point in time so then you you can't just be you and just talk about Mm. you know what had happened right You still probably can't sort of the stuff but it's so there's these constraints where you're sometimes sort of uh you know trying to find words for describing things because you're trying to talk around stuff not because it's bad just because of the operational security surrounding some of the things. Yeah. Right. So it's, yeah, it was, it was a minefield for me early on and I'm an introvert boys, a massive introvert. So I, 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 you know, I struggled early on and, you know, i got some media training They provided defense provided me training and uh, my ex wife at the time was thrown in there as well. She, you know, she absolutely life turned upside down with that as well. She didn't sign up for that Mm -hmm. probably, you know, what, what caused some of our relationship problems as well is just the change in dynamic, the change in direction of life. Uh, And I look back and absolutely the VC contributed to marriage breakdown. Yeah, absolutely.
0: You you reflect and you describe it really well in your book how it changed your life and and potentially some of the negative aspects. Um, I certainly get the feeling you you felt at times you weren't in control of what was happening to you and you'd never asked for this. Um, yeah. Can you can you sort of talk a bit more about how you navigated through that and and what it was like in terms of that massive change in lifestyle and change in expectations.
2: Yeah, look, I think, look, with everything, ex- you know, experience with, with everything, with time, it comes. And for me, I said yes to everything, completely out of my depth often with, with what I was asked to do. Uh, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty good at uh, uh, of, of getting things done and, 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 you know, coming up with a solution. But for me, I was so far out of my depth uh, for media interviews and, and just completely thrown into that spotlight. Uh, that I, you know, I struggled with that side, but I am introvert, so I would pull back naturally. I, you know, doing events and stuff, I'm, I'm in a room full of 100 people of of strangers that I've never met before, and I'm and I'm speaking at an event because I've been asked to it was for a charity cause or it's to support veterans or which I will always do and will still do this day. But it's, you know, I find myself naturally, you know, people wanting to talk to me, but here I am gravitating to the corner of a room full of 100 people that have come to see me talk. Right, just. <laughs> But it was odd, so bizarre, a number of years after, after the investiture where I'm, uh, you know, I think uh, we, before we got on, online today and, and started chatting, I think I said, you know, I've been around the world so many trips, but I was in the air at one point longer than I was on the ground. I flew across to LA to do a job in LA and I was back on a plane and flying home. So I was literally on the ground for a number of hours and I was, I was flying longer than I was to do a job to come back to Australia to step into something else. So complete upheaval of what I was doing you know, at that point in time, I was still juggling week on week off with the mines. So I was still working. Well, I was actually working a full shift of, you know, whatever 80 something hours doing a shift to the mines. And then, and then my week off, well, it wasn't a week off. I was just under the pump, you know, traveling and, and mm-hmm. doing all these other, other things and supporting causes. And, and yeah, I, I really, you know, my mate, Marcus, their manager, Marcus Randall, and, uh, he had a chat with me at, at some point. Yeah. I can't remember exactly what it was or when it was, but, you know, he's like, mate, you're, you're in a burnout. You keep doing this. You know, this is not good for you. I can see a physical change in you. You know, you're withdrawn, you know, you, you need to start making some decisions um, about where you want to go and what you want to do um, because I can't have a mining career and then do all these other things. Yeah. I mean, I was making it work because I always make it work, but it wasn't, wasn't good for me. And it wasn't good for my relationship clearly. Mm. So, uh, so I made the decision to, to quit the mines not long after that. And I end up on the, the speaking circuit for a bit. And I uh, was very fortunate, very fortunate. So, you know, I'd spoken about some of the, I suppose, less positive things with all of a sudden receiving a, you know, being recognized and having a public profile, but it, you know, it got you in front of people as well. So there's opportunities that have been presented from, from these things. And uh, Kerry Stokes as uh, on the chair is the chair of the Australian World on the board. I remember having a chat with him going, you know, what do you want to do one day? And I I said to, you know, offhand comment, I had no idea of the significance. And I I didn't actually know he was on the board at that point in time or the chair of the board. Uh, I said, you know what? I'd like to see myself uh, running the War world in 20 years time. Hmm. Uh, Probably two weeks later, I I got a call from the minister of veteran affairs going, there's a spot uh, available on the board of Australian warm world. We'd (laughs) like you to to apply. I think it'd be a good fit for you as a contemporary veteran to be part of that. Um, So I think that was probably the first time where I sort of realized that, you know, all these different people that I've been exposed to and opportunities that were there, you know, I certainly hadn't taken, wouldn't say taken advantage of them, but I hadn't, hadn't pursued them. I hadn't looked at them. I hadn't thought of them seriously uh, until probably a couple of years after the investiture hmm. where, where I started realizing that, you know, here I am in this doing everything, you know, what do I actually want to do? And it took me a few years to work out you know, where I wanted to sort of go after the whirlwind of, of what had happened.
0: And another person that it got you in front of was Dame Quentin Bryce.
2: (laughs) Yeah, look, it was, I I have so much time, um, for Dame Quentin Bryce and I caught up with her uh, a couple of years, you know, after the investiture and she'd, she'd stepped down um, from her role as the, the governor general, uh, catching up with her as you do. And, uh, I didn't realize that she had an office. Uh, at QUT, so Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane. And that's where she was had herself based. And she goes, Dan, what are you doing with yourself? And I said, oh, look, I'm, you know, I'm doing this. And then I, was, I started working in the defense industry. So I was doing a few jobs here and there within industry, I, you know, trying to give back in a way. You know, I joined up when I was 17 and I, and I wanted to try and fix some of the things I saw. I wouldn't say we wrong, but if I could influence shape or change, say in the equipment space or, or something like that. I, I really wanted to do that to make the lives of those that were serving better. But <laughs> I, I still am very focused on, that. I'm, I'm in defense industry now. And that is, that is why I do what I do because if I, there's an opportunity for me to better, to, to help someone that's doing it tough out there, that's, you know, doing their job, you know, in a foreign country somewhere. And I have the ability to to influence a decision where they it makes their life easier or they, they've got the equipment they need. Yeah. I'm all for that. But for me at that point in time, It was very much of, you know, I was just trying things here and there. I was working for Channel 7 for a bit, uh, you know, an occasional guest presenter. (laughs) So that was, that was a bit of a a whirlwind there as well. Uh, But she asked me, Dan Quinn Bryce asked me where I was going and what was next. And um, she posed the question to me, had had you thought about further education? Look, I hadn't, I really hadn't at that point in time. I hadn't needed it. I'd, yeah, I had made a plenty. I've made plenty of mistakes in the the years after the investiture. Absolutely, of you know, business decisions and other things because I, you know, I just didn't have the foundation and understanding. You know, a, a lot of steep learning curves there. That's for sure. Mm. But um, but yes, yeah, we had that conversation, and I think the next day you've got an email from I think it was Glenn Murphy, uh, the uh, QT business director at the school, and he goes, "Mate, I want you to come in for interview." Um, you know. Uh, Quentin Bryce has uh, said so that you're interested. I'm like, it's just, just <laughs> taking on a life of its own. Uh, so within a matter of weeks, here I am uh, doing interviews and that and, and putting paperwork in to be accepted. Or I got accepted finally to, to do my executive masters of business and uh, admin. So I, uh, I finished that this year. So two and a, two and a bit years of study. Uh, someone that was a, Grew up in the bush and, you know, finished, you know, I finished year 12 at least, but I had never done anything like that. I'd done none of short courses and blasting, you know, this and that. Mm. You know, I did my advanced diploma of leadership and management and diploma, uh, diploma of project management. So a lot of that was recognition of prior learning from my, my time in defense. So complete change in direction, writing, like I've never written stuff like that, you know, assignments and classes. And I do not know which way I was up sometimes. And, you know, by that time, you know, my relationship had broken down and I've, I've got a little boy jack uh who's who's now 3 years old so i am juggling uh <laughs> juggling uni weekends and and uh you know uh, sort of time with my son and yeah well, mate, it was a tough couple of years but i uh, i managed to get through and uh and, and finish finished it and and, pa- and pass i should say a cute it's awesome, right. awesome. Uh, uh,
1: what did you take away from the mba
2: so much so much i mean i use i think i look at it as like a it's a handbook of frameworks or, or, you know, ideas of there's, I've got this this information now. If I need it, I know where to go and get it. So for me, you know, I didn't have that previously. I mean, I'd, I'd wing it. So for me, you know, I use stuff that I've learned throughout the NBA most days with my business dealings now with, with TELUS and defence industry. So, so much, lads, so much. From what I, yeah. I couldn't I couldn't pinpoint one thing, but every single day there's something that I take away from it. Yeah.
1: And is it safe to say that your book, courage under fire might not have been written if it wasn't for your NBA journey.
2: <laughs> uh, look, it is safe to say, absolutely. Uh, so Alex Lloyd, uh, who's another uh, podcast. Uh, Wait, well, when he started pod- a number of years ago, anyway, he started, he started doing a few podcasts and he asked me to be uh, on, on one of his episodes. Uh, I had no idea of his background at all. And I said, yep, we ended up chatting, uh, ends up working for Pam McMillan, uh, probably probably, he was in London at the time. So this is 12 months later. He was, he was over in London, working in London with Pamak over there. And I, uh, you know, started a conversation up with him because I was doing a uni assignment and you know, part of that uni assignment was negotiation. I thought, you know what, I'm going to look at what it would take to do a book and do some research and I'll, I'll, and I'll use that as a foundation, um, for an assignment. But then once I did all that work, I thought, you know what, why don't I actually do this? Why, why, why have I delayed? Cause I, I, I had been asked, every year probably for the last you know, five years by someone or a publisher or someone to, to put some words down. And I, there's another reasons why I didn't, one was my dad. Uh, I didn't think I could do it justice while he was alive and he passed away this year. In fact, so he, he passed away uh, the start of this year at a long battle with cancer. Uh, not, not a good way to go in the end. Uh, however, I think his passing was, for me, it was a enabled me to go, you know what, I, I can be a little bit honest about what happened. Uh, when I was younger about some of the things that happened, yeah.
1: Hmm. I want to ask a question on the supportive nature of other VC recipients, but if I can extract a few lines from your book, because I think this tells a little bit of a a story before maybe I throw to you on how uh, how you have come together with the other VC recipients. And you say in your book actually of Mark Donaldson that he gave you this advice, give time to anyone and everyone who wants to stop and talk to you sign photos, sign autographs. You might be having a bad day, said Mark, but for that person who's taken the time to email you or worked up the courage to come to you, a stranger in a pub, it might be one of the most important things they do in their life and you need to remember that.
2: 100%, absolutely. Uh, And that was also uh, words to that effect by Keith Payne as well, so the same thing, so that Mm -hmm. both of them, very early on said that to me and I, I hadn't looked at it like that uh and you know i remember mark saying at that point in time like he he would hand write letters all the time and i know his wife you know would say look he'd be up for hours writing and, and getting back to people and, and talking to people so you know great advice you know the, the best thing that you can give someone is time
1: hmm. and david morrison when he handed over that envelope at the small kalgoorlie airport said this will change your life how Uh, has this changed your life
2: look uh, we spoke about uh, some of the things today and there's been some ups and downs and you know i you know reluctant i think reluctant hero you know i'm just doing my job i'm not a hero i still don't think i deserve the medal i'll I'll put it out there right now I, i still don't think i i do i should be dead for what i did uh somehow i wasn't killed and I was never alone as well. I think I've said that once today, but let's let's make that clear as well. I was part of a team, and I would be dead if it wasn't for my team and my mates. Uh, and I usually always start with that, so I'll make sure that's on the record because I know I wouldn't be here today without without their support. But it, it has it has changed my life, and it's been a bit of a roller coaster now. And I think the last few years, I think I'm I'm more comfortable with with what it is, and I think I've defined my space of what I want to do. Uh, and you know that that is certainly helping people and using. If yeah, if the Victoria Cross enables me to to use that as a platform to be able to help veterans and other people, uh, then I will continue to do that.
0: And the book very much there's no uh, sort of fairy tale ending or or sort of closure. You're you're mm. not in a, a sort of castle with the the, the sort of dragon slain. But it <laughs> does talk about you know I think a very realistic approach that look life is good and and you've you've got the the next chapter to look forward to. What is that next chapter going to entail? Do you reckon, Dan?
2: Look, absolutely. I I think that I wanted to set out, so the purpose behind this was for me, it was overcoming adversity. So I think I I mentioned that before is, you know, changing your stars. Like I grew up pretty rough and, you know, there's a number of decision points along my life where I could have gone either way and through hard work, persistent, you know, persistency, I suppose. And then having also a bit of luck there and having some good mentors along the way and people that I looked up to has enabled me to, to well and truly, you know, move away from that, that kid from a, that grew up in the bush to, to where I am now. Now for me, next steps for me, you know, I'm, I'm working now in defense industry. I'm still trying to try to do the right thing by those that serve. Uh, I've got a great partner now. Um, so, you know, life is moving on. Um, so, you know, things, things are looking up for me and who knows what's next. I'll, uh, I would say there, there will be something but uh, I won't, I won't tell you what that is.
1: Wait out for the sequel book two (laughs) maybe Courage Under Fire 2 by Daniel Kieran VC. (laughs) well this book is an incredible read it's incredibly honest I put it down twice I think uh, and it is amazing it's out November 2020 Courage Under Fire your book and I can strongly encourage anyone in the run up to Christmas to grab a coffee copy grab a coffee as well (laughs) coffee and a copy Um, incredible book
2: I uh, appreciate the plug, guys. I, I, I do thank you, and look, I've really enjoyed chatting with you today.
0: That's been brilliant, mate. Thanks for your time. Thank you.
1: Meanwhile, he's tripping out. So she takes a car. Meanwhile,
0: she's leaving town. She
1: won't go